the shows I was always drawn to when I was younger were the ones where you'd have this really nerdy character um, that kind of hid in the background. And then you have this kind of jock, everyone loved, most popular guy in school. And he sees this person, this, this girl who looks scared and who definitely isn't trying to get any attention on herself. And he, he sees the potential in her. And somehow he uncovers this whole new identity for this girl. Favorite thing about Chip? If you give Chip a boundary, he's gonna break that boundary. If you give him a rule, he's not gonna follow it. And if you tell him he can't go past this line, put his toe over it. Joanna is like the purest, most stable person I've ever met. I like safety. I like knowing what's coming. I don't want to be surprised. I don't know if we would have dated in college if we would have known each other. My wife is a bit of a wallflower. You know, I joke with her pretty publicly that she was almost awkward when we first met. And he always jokes I'm the guy in the relationship. Because when he wants to talk and dig, I don't want to talk. I just want to eat my fries. I would have been the guy on a horseback riding off into the wilderness. I mean, that's who I sort of was by nature. And Joe could not be more opposite than that. Fear and failure doesn't even cross his mind. He doesn't let that even go through one ear and out the other. The little voice in your ear that talks when you're being quiet, my little voice tells me how handsome I am, tells me how funny I am tells me how rich I'm going to be. You know, it's just constantly talking. You can't censor Chip. I used to drive my truck, and I would play a little game with myself to see how out of gas I could get without, in fact, running completely out of gas. And she was like, why would anybody want to play that? For someone who is a rule follower to a T, um, it's, 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 it's an adventure. Who doesn't love Chip and Joanna Gaines, right? Husbands, I'm sorry because none of us can compete with Chip. I'm sorry to even use that this morning. I don't know a woman alive in America that doesn't love Chip Gaines, right? I don't like him at all. <laughs> Last week, uh, we had John and Joe Crosby in the service, and they did a great job, and one of our security team members, JJ, was in the lobby. In fact, he's standing in the back of the auditorium right now. He and Bailey have attended this church for a long time. And, and John and Joe did a great job as usual. And after the service, uh, JJ and Bailey got in the truck. They're headed home. And he said, uh, I didn't get to see or be in there during the message. I was in the lobby on security, but I saw some of it on the TV. Now, was that the same couple that we had at our church last year? And Bailey said, yeah, and the year before that, too. And he said, I really like them. And he paused. Chip and Joanna, right? That's what he said. <laughs> no, JJ, not Chip and Joanna. Did you notice how in that relationship it's incredibly obvious that opposites seem to have attracted? I find that very, very common. In 30 plus years of 
officiating at weddings and doing marriage counseling, I find very few people who are attracted to one another and they're exactly alike. In fact, in my premarital counseling, we always do like a personality profile or a survey. And very, very rarely, I can think of two occasions in 30 plus years where I've actually married two people that shared the same personality. Most of the time, we gravitate towards someone who's very different than we are. That's what makes it good. I mean, Amy is very, very different than me. That's why I love her. I wouldn't want to marry someone who is just like me. Amy completes me. She makes me whole even. Maybe that's part of God's original plan. Not in all cases, but certainly through my observation, it seems to be true in many, many cases. That's what we're going to examine today. God's original plan for family. God's original design. Several weeks ago when we kicked off this series, we dealt with Joshua chapter 24 and we explored the idea of a new normal for your family. Remember, to Joshua, family was very simple. As for me and my house, he said, we will serve the Lord. Now here's how we would say that. We would say, as for me and my house, we will follow Christ. Or as for me and my house, we will honor God. If your home is in disarray, if it's in need of repair, maybe you need to return back to a new normal, a new normal for you, but actually a very old normal, according to Joshua. Then John Cook did a great job with a very heavy and weighty subject in week number two, the sanctity of human life. Do you realize that the Bible teaches that all of human life is sacred? It's sacred because we were created in the image of our creator. The Bible teaches that long before you were ever born, your heavenly father knew exactly who and what you could be. Then last time, as I indicated, John Crosby did a great job with a subject that is very common in most relationships, that of anger. When you put two people who are wired differently under the same roof, you can find them in one small arena. Conflict is inevitable. And one of the things he said, and I hope you wrote it down, at least consciously, if not subconsciously, is that the importance of slowing things down when it comes to anger. You know, in a lot of conflict, couples say and do things that escalate the anger. We know the right buttons to push. And so we push them. And before long, a small problem has turned into a knockdown drag out because we've escalated the anger. It is important when dealing with anger, which is not sin in and of itself, to de-escalate or slow things down. Today, we're going to talk about design. In fact, that is the big idea today. God designed family to work. God designed your family to work. If you are struggling to make it work, maybe it's important that we revisit that original design because originally, according to this book, God designed family and marriage to work and to work well. Read with me in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse 18. The passage I'm going to read, oh my goodness, has so many good quality answers relevant answers to your questions regarding marriage and relationships. Follow along as I read aloud. Verse 18, the Lord God said, now remember, we're in the sixth day of creation. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. All right, pause for a moment. 
This is a departure from the previous pattern that's already been established. In the first five days of creation, the Bible reveals that God stood back, examined all that he had accomplished, and said, now that is good. That is very good. But on the sixth day, when he creates man in his aloneness, he says, that's not good. In fact, in the original Hebrew text, the statement is very, very emphatic. Here's how it reads. Not good, exclamation point, man in his aloneness. So, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. You know what that word means? Completer, partner, one to share in the building of a home. I'll make a helper suitable for him. That means that Adam, the first man, needed a helper, needed a companion that was like him, but not identical to him. Now, I find this very interesting because the Bible says plainly, in Genesis chapter 2, that man needs woman to be complete. The Bible never says in any place I could find that woman needs man to be complete. Isn't that interesting? Now, maybe that's implied because two are better than one, and we're about to get into the intimacy, the oneness of the marriage relationship. So at least part of that's implied, but I find it interesting. I can tell you from my observation Over my ministry, I have buried many husbands, and I've seen wives left behind grieving choose never to marry again. But I've buried a few wives as well, and within six or ten months, that guy's dating some woman, 20 years his junior. Men are pigs. (laughs) Maybe that's because men need women to complete them. I will make a helper suitable for him, verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no, here it comes again, suitable helper, no completer, was found. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Now, you know this story. Maybe you grew up and someone told you that's why men have one less ribs than women. That's not a factual statement. Please don't ever repeat that. The issue is not whether or not this is an allegory, this is a made-up story to help us understand that God created male and female, or if this is exactly the way it happened. I don't think that's the point. The point is that God created woman out of the exact same stuff he created men. God created woman as an equal. You see, that's what the rib represents. The rib is a neutral symbol. The Bible doesn't say that God created woman from a bone in the man's foot, something he didn't need, perhaps. The Bible doesn't say that God created woman out of man's head or a bone from his skull. The Bible says that God created woman from a rib, by his side, from the same stuff as man. Now listen very carefully. I say this all the time. This is once again another distinguishing characteristic that separates Christianity from every other world religion. Christianity teaches that God created both male and female equal in his image. Islam does not teach that. 
Men are superior to women in other world religions. Hinduism does not teach that. The ancient Babylonian theology does not teach that. Only Christianity says that God created man and woman equal and in his image. Keep reading. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. He brought her to the man. Well, that's beautiful because you know what that describes? That is the exact picture of a father walking a bride down the aisle to present her to the groom. God, your heavenly father, fashioned woman as man's completer and then brought her to the man. She is special. She is unique. She is worthy. She is valuable. And the father gives her away to the groom. Keep reading. Verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones. We're equal. Flesh of my flesh. We're equal. She will be called woman. For she was taken out of man. Now, with all of that in mind, what follows next are two verses which reveal God's blueprint, his original design for your marriage. In other words, with everything we now know, based upon what we've just read, listen to verses 24 and 25. The Bible says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother. There's the first essential action. We'll call it severance. I'll talk more about these in a moment. Notice that the man bears the brunt of that responsibility. That is why a man leaves his father and mother. It is assumed or presumed that a wife does the same, but the bulk of the responsibility falls on the man's shoulders. That's why when we're first married, it's not about when my family wants to meet for Christmas. It's about when your family wants to meet for Christmas. My family as the man will work around your family as the woman. A man leaves his father and mother, severance, a critical ingredient to building a strong and stable home. He goes on, and is united to his wife. That's the second action. We're going to call that permanence. It's a, it's a covenant agreement, a covenant relationship before God. Listen, it is an intentional, unbreakable commitment before God to be united, better word, bonded to a woman or bonded to a man. It is a reflection of God's relationship with his children. You see, God's love and relationship with us is intentional and unbreakable. Our marriages are to reflect that reality. And they will become one flesh. There's the third critical ingredient to building a strong home. We'll call that unity. So severance, permanence, unity. Unity, of course, means oneness. And listen, Oneness has very little to do with a sexual union in a marriage. The sexuality in a marriage is simply a symbol that reflects the exclusivity and the permanence of that relationship. That's why the Bible says you ought to wait until you're married to have sex. Wait until you've made the lifelong commitment to enjoy the intimacy. Verse 24, I want to read it again. That's why a man leaves his father and mother, severance, is united to his wife, permanence, and they become one flesh unity. 
All right? This is the biblical design. Let's examine them one at a time very quickly. Number one, severance. This involves a shifting of the primary loyalty from my birth family to my marriage family. Now, that may sound simple. That may be understood in most cultures. But I'm telling you, a lot of families get this wrong. When a young married couple bonds together before God, it is critical that they establish boundaries, that they create guidelines, promoting their marriage family, new as it is, untested as it is, over their birth family. If you're a parent of a child who's about to be engaged or about to get married, you've got to learn how to butt out. You've got to learn how to back off. You do your children a grave disservice by continuing to meddle, by continuing to fix problems, solve problems. You say, hey, look, my 28-year-old son can't make it on his own. He depends on me. They depend on me financially. They depend on me to help them solve their problems. Maybe so, but you're not helping them. The biblical principle begins with severance. My married family is now most important. It takes priority over my birth family. That's severance. The second word was permanence and is bonded to his wife. It's a permanent bond in the eyes of God. That means that it's no longer about my best interests. It's about your best interests because we were two. Now we are one. It's not about your problem or my problem or your fault or my fault. It's about our struggle. It's about our issue. If there is one thing I can encourage you never to relinquish, never to give up on, never to forget, it's when conflict invades your space as man and wife, as husband and wife, never give up on the understanding that we're teammates in this. We're co-laborers. We're allies. We're responsible for guarding the health and the well-being of our marriage. Again, there's no your side. There's no, well, your parents are going to side with you and my parents are going to side with me. It's not about that anymore because two have been bonded into one. It's about our struggle and solving our problem, permanence, and then unity. And they become one flesh. You realize that's why we light unity candles in a marriage ceremony. You've seen that, right? There are two candles. At a certain point in the service, the couple picks up their candle. One represents the bride and one represents the groom. They unite or light a center candle, the oneness of their home, and then they blow out their individual candle. It's why we pour the sand into the jar and blend the colors. It's why we braid those silly little knots that guys never do. All the weddings I've ever done, they both walk over there like they're both going to participate. And he kind of stands there and does this. Nobody can see. And she braids. The reason we do that is verse 24. And they become one flesh. Now, that doesn't mean that you lose your individual personalities or your individual hopes or dreams. It means that you're developing, you're building something immensely greater. Two have become one. And in the eyes of God, that one is filled with incredible potential. Now pause for a moment. Stop. Stop and imagine for just a few seconds. Imagine the strength of a marriage built on those three essential actions. Severance, 
permanence and unity. Imagine a couple and a courtship where these ideas are explored, where they're discussed, where they're nourished, where they're sought after. Imagine a dating relationship that's built like this before making the commitment and before enjoying the sex. That's God's design. And his design builds strong families. Look, verse 25 reveals the payoff. Here's why we do it. Here's why we should engage the process. Verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. The result of implementing verse 24 is intimacy. Verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and yet they felt no shame. In this ancient poetic language, let me describe what's taking place here because it paints a beautiful picture of intimacy. Is there any more shame associated with anything than standing naked in front of someone? Right? Is there any more vulnerable feeling than being naked in front of someone for the very first time? The Bible says that following severance, a commitment to permanence, and then building the oneness... The end result is intimacy, closeness, oneness. Uh, an intimate relationship is one that's wide open because there is no threat. I'm not afraid of you because you're my ally. We're intimate. I'm standing before you naked. It's like... Okay. Hope this is all right, because it's all I got. And knowing that I'm accepted in your eyes, knowing that I'm loved, knowing that I'm appreciated, knowing that I'm safe. You see, that's intimacy. So when the Bible says that Adam and Eve, they're both naked and they felt no shame, it means they were intimate. They made themselves vulnerable because they were safe. You see, that's what intimacy is. Intimacy means being other conscious, not self-conscious. Being other conscious, not self-conscious. Now think about it. Why would anyone want to sacrifice the opportunity to build a lifelong, lasting, loving, honoring, fulfilling, intimate relationship in order to run off and chase a brand new, quote, in love experience. And yet we do it all the time. Why would anyone want to put all their money into an accidental connection when you have the ability in an intimate love relationship to build something that is ongoing, self-fueling, and lifelong? Why is it that after seven years or 10 years or 15 years, all of a sudden it just doesn't feel right? It doesn't feel the same, but now we've met someone else and everything seems new again and everything seems fresh again. Why would we abandon one for the sake of the other? It's because naturally we are self-conscious, not other conscious. God's design, severance, permanence, unity, breeding intimacy, making us other conscious, not self-conscious. Now, 
What happens if today is the first time you've ever heard something like this? What happens if you're not familiar with Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25? What if this is all news to you? What happens if you fell in love? You got involved emotionally and relationally and physically long before you ever tried to build something lasting and strong. Well, there is hope for you, but you got to stop making the same mistakes that everybody seems to keep making. I have watched couples enter into a difficult season in their family, in their relationship, in their marriage, and the first thing they decide to do is to accumulate more stuff. That'll solve our problem. Now, if we could build our dream home together, that'd solve all our problems. Now, let me be clear about something. It's not as if when your relationship is suffering, you call a family meeting, you sit down on the couch and you say, decide collectively, here's the solution, we're going to buy a bigger house. Nobody says that. But you do it subconsciously because you're searching, you're seeking to fill something that once was very full. The accumulation of more stuff will not build a strong relationship, a strong family. Others say, well, let's have another child. Let's bring another baby into this family. That's what we need. That'll bond us together like never before. Don't do it. That's not what you need. Others say, well, I need a life change. You know, if I went back to school and I got my degree and I could go chase my dream job, if I could bring in more money, that's not going to solve your problem. And then finally, sometimes it's a last resort. Well, what I need is a spouse upgrade. That's what I need. It doesn't feel the way I think it's supposed to feel, so I'm going to go find someone else and rekindle that feeling. Severance, permanence, unity. It's a tall order. Not easy. How do we do it? If you're here today and you're committing to rebuilding a strong relationship, then let me encourage you with one other passage. I'm going to show you how to do it. Proverbs chapter 24. Look at Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 3. In Proverbs 24, verse 3 and 4, Solomon reveals that strong families are not built upon what we have or what we've managed to acquire or what we've managed to accomplish. They're built upon who we are and what we seek. Watch. Proverbs 24, verse 3. By wisdom, a house is built. You see the word built? It means exactly what you think it means. Picture a bunch of carpenters early in the morning, standing on a foundation, driving home those nails, standing up those stud walls. Up, there go the rafters. Here comes the roof sheathing. They're building a house. Solomon says, by wisdom, you build your house. How did you build your house? Man, I'm telling you. The sex was so good, I knew we'd be together forever. How's that working for you? By wisdom, a house is built. Through understanding, it is established. The word established means made strong. Through understanding. Not through possessions. Not through a hefty bank account. Through understanding. That's what makes your family strong. And then through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful Treasures. Let's look at those one at a time. Three vital ingredients to building a strong family. Again, in our culture, we put so much emphasis on the sex and the romance. It's in our music, it's in our media, it's in our entertainment. If the sex is good, if the romance is there, if the feelings are strong, there's no stopping us. You realize the designer says otherwise? 
you realize the designer says this, start by building something that's lasting and strong. When you start building what is lasting and strong, then you make the commitment to the married relationship, the covenant before God. You make an intelligent choice based upon what I know we are building together, what I know we can accomplish in the future. I intelligently choose you as my lifelong partner and then enjoy the sex. That's the way God says build it. Wisdom. Wisdom, number one, means seeing with discernment. Solomon said, by wisdom, the house is built. You build the house by seeing with discernment. Let me give you a a great example of what seeing with discernment means. It means seeing as God sees it. Seeing as God sees it. I had a conversation several months ago with a man in our church. He's a business owner. He said, Mike, something happened to me last week that just opened my eyes. He said, for months, my wife and I, we've been bickering and arguing about the hours I spend and and the work I do. And he said, I I come home at six or seven every night. He said, but the other night I came home at 6.30. He said, and all of a sudden it occurred to me at 9.45 as I was returning an email on my cell phone that that phone hadn't been out of my hand in over three hours. I was supposed to help prepare the meal for the family, but I was tied up with phone conversations, text messages, and emails. Three and a half hours had passed. I was supposed to be the cook that night, but my wife handled it as usual. And all of a sudden, this wave washed over me, and I realized something's got to change. Something's got to change. Wisdom means seeing as God sees it. Men, let me ask you a question. How does God see your wife? To God, is your wife more valuable than your work? Wives, how does God see your husband? Is your husband more valuable than your children? That's a tough pill to swallow. That's what this book teaches. Let me ask you, how does God see your marriage, your union, your family? Wisdom builds the house by seeing it as God sees it. Number two, is understanding. You know what that word means? That means a high degree of insight. Okay. How insightful are you regarding your marriage, your relationship? Do you have insight when it comes to your spouse? Are you good at offering your spouse an out because you understand that she sees it totally differently than you do? She's wired completely differently than you are. Do you understand that those differences are what make you strong? You're better together because of those differences, not in spite of those differences, but because of those differences. You're better together than you could have been alone. That's insight. Recognizing that a tiny little step for me is a giant leap for her because I'm a risk taker by nature and she's conservative by nature. How insightful are you? And then the third one was knowledge. said, you're going to fill up your house with all the good stuff if you know what you're doing. Let me ask you a question, a very telling question. When your marriage is good, why is it good? Do you know why it's good when it's good? Or are you just sort of along for the ride? Hey, it's been really good lately. Hope I don't screw it up. Right? Do you know why it's bad when it's bad? Do you know? You see... When two become one, when they're bonded together, they win together, they lose together, and hopefully they learn together. So 
How do I gain wisdom and understanding and knowledge so that I could build my house or rebuild my family correctly? Here's why I sound like a preacher. You can't without God. You can't. You can read all the self-help books you want. They're not going to grant you wisdom, understanding. They're not going to give you the knowledge necessary. In fact, the Bible says just that. Listen to Proverbs chapter 2 and verse 6. The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. That means that God has to be involved in the building of your family. He has to be involved in the rebuilding of your home. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. Bible also says that. It's Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds your house, the builders labor in vain. When two become one, it is a beautiful thing. And when together, bonded in oneness, they build something strong, it is unstoppable. That's what so many of you admire about Chip and Joanna. Watch this. I think like loving somebody is top rolled down, James Dean and whomever flying through the mountains, going too fast, reckless. And your idea was no bubble tape. Yeah. Sitting around wrapped up eating, eating church's chicken. If I didn't have chip gains in my life, I'd still be dreaming in my head, but not acting out on any of that, not living it out. You push me. You push me out of my comfort zone. I like comfortable. I like predictable. Mm -hmm. And you push me. Am I any of those? No. Nope. Not comfortable or predictable? You're comfortable in that you're consistent in just who you are as Chip. But you're definitely not predictable. I think that's one of the reasons that I love her like I do. I mean, I feel like she knows me in a way that that has caused me to stop acting. You know, I feel like I've really been an actor. I've been a character my whole life. I've always tried to prove something to someone. Do the microphone thing that okay. makes me feel more comfortable. Remember the time that I came home from that guy's trip in East Texas? Do I look fat? Just, no, just make sure your jeans aren't too tight. You know what, what I mean? Do I feel, do I no, look comfortable? No, your jeans are real tight right there. <laughs> Just like that. Watch your everything. I'm watching. <laughs> when I caught her, I finally felt content for the first time in my life. I felt like I could be exactly who I was. Look at you, sexy mama. Showing some skin. I see that. That's <laughs> interesting. I have learned so much about order and structure and and processes through my wife, and God is all of those things to me now. But at the beginning, God was just chaotic to me. He was wild, he was untamed, he was un, unruly, and I, I liked that. But God had a funny way of bringing me Chip to almost have this reality of what it's like to follow Christ, which is a lot of the things are gonna push you to a place of discomfort. A lot of things are going to push you to a place of freaking out. It takes someone who's externally 
this, whatever right, that processes, is. Processes, yeah. Because um, it helps me get it out there because it's healthier to be out there than it is just let it all kind of play in my mind. Hmm. I don't want to be in the box anymore. I don't want to play it safe um, because where the impact is, is over here on the other side. You were like a flower in desperate need of water. You blossomed in a way that was really fascinating to watch. I was made for a reason and I need to I need to let whatever God has created me for, I mean, that, that's, that needs to be known. I don't need to stay hidden. Did good on your makeup. Thanks, Jim. My walk with God when I was little and all the way up until like my 20s was always, if you play by the rules, you'll be blessed. Um, but then I met Chip, and I feel like now it's when you take a step out in faith, when it makes absolutely no sense, um, I think that's where the greater reward is. There's no telling where that will take you. My name is Joanna Gaines, and I am second. And I'm Chip Gaines, and I am second. That was legit. I don't think so. I think so. Let's try that again. Oh. That is the beauty and the simplicity of God's design in a sentence. When I am second to Christ in my own home, and when I am second to my wife in my own home, and when she is second to Christ and second to me, the sky is the limit. There is no stopping us. There is nothing that will ever come upon us that we cannot overcome. Now, it may sound simple, doesn't mean it's easy. It will take work, but I can promise you, I can promise you, the payoff, the intimacy, the oneness is so worth the effort. You see, all of us can demand we come first. We can demand that we are heard. We can demand that our needs are met. And there's a certain level of good feeling that comes along with that, putting yourself first. But I can promise you, it is exponentially greater to have someone else put you first. And that's what God's design truly does. So very quickly, here's my advice. If you're struggling to rebuild your family, number one, start now. Don't go another day without addressing the need to, be, to rebuild. If the roof is leaking, it won't be long before something collapses and everything is ruined, trust me. Number two, commit to the design. Today we've examined God's design for your home. Carve out 60 minutes this week on a porch swing with your spouse in a rocking chair, maybe in the bedroom. The kids are entertained for 60 minutes if that's possible, in your home. And watch the video again. Watch the message again. Pause the video and, and discuss things that interest you, but commit to the design. And then number three, work on you. Work on you. Stop trying to fix him. Stop trying to change her. Work on you. It's not his problem. It's not 
her issue. It's our challenge. God has so much more for your family. It all begins with your commitment to his plan, his design. And one thing is certain. Nothing is ever going to change for your family if you refuse to consider that original blueprint and that original design. God bless you. Let's pray. Father, it is my sincere desire to build strong and lasting families at Grace Community Church. Help us, Father. Help us in our pursuit. And while these remain ideals and goals, we may never, ever achieve all of them at one point at the same time perfectly. We can still reach and strive and work toward them. So, Father, in you, may we see ourselves as second. May we find the wisdom, the understanding, gain the knowledge that is necessary to return to that original design and build something strong and lasting and beautiful. I pray all of it because of my immense respect for your word and in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Hope you make it a fantastic week. I'll see you next time.